history, according to Luke 16, part 2, spoken by Pastor Peter on. Well, good morning, Metro, and uh, good morning to those in the nursery and to our online community. Welcome to Metro Community Church. We're glad that you're here uh, this past year. If this is your very first time with us today, we've been going inductively into the Gospel of Luke, uh, learning about the life of Jesus Christ, and that's kind of what we've been doing. Uh, the last several months, I think, the focus have re- has really been on discipleship. That's the topic in which uh, Jesus is talking about, and today he kind of continues that uh, as he talks deeper about what it kind of means to be a disciple. Many years ago, I had a friend, and she kind of came to me for some counsel. She was struggling in her life a bit, and she shared a particular instance that she went and hung out with her parents. They were playing board games. I forget what board game it was, but they were enjoying each other's company so much so that they all just started laughing, just having a real good time. And in the middle of that laughter, she just started bursting out into tears. Her parents were horrified at that, and they said, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And she simply said that one day you two will die, and I will not be able to enjoy this moment like this again. And so she was so sad about the future, about death, and even the afterlife, that it actually prevented her from enjoying her life today. And I don't know where you are in the spectrum of life, especially death and the afterlife, but some of you might have even had a near-death experience uh, in your life. Some of you might have lost some loved ones that you really do care about. And so this whole topic of death has been something that you've been thinking about a lot, quite a bit. It has been. And, uh, but then there's a lot of you who are young today, and <laughs> you never think about death. You hardly ever think about the afterlife and what's going to happen. And I think you need to at some levels. You, you shouldn't be fixated on it, but you should be thinking about it a bit because we're going to spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. There is no in-between. I'm sorry to tell you that. And today, Jesus, we're going to look at this passage of Scripture in Luke, and Jesus is going to teach us the one criterion that he will use in determining whether you and I have a relationship with him, this one criterion determining whether that relationship will determine whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell. All right, and so it's kind of a hard teaching today, but I mean, what teaching of Jesus is it? In the last couple of weeks, it's really kind of been hard teaching, but he's going to teach us that. What is the one criterion that Jesus will use, that God will use on the day of judgment on whether we will go to heaven or hell? That's what we're going to learn today. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 19 to 31. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. <clears throat> I'm reading from the New International Version. It says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is confronted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, are a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. 
He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment in prayer. So God, uh, we come to you again on this very Sunday, and we ask that you would help us to really understand this teaching that you taught 2,000 years ago. And as much as it had relevance back then, God, I pray that it would have even more relevance for us today. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you, God, that we can learn from your word and we can be encouraged to be more like you. And I pray that today you would teach us to get there, get one step closer to becoming more like you. So I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room would be pleasing unto you. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. What is the one criterion that God uses to determine whether you will go to heaven or hell? What's the one criterion that God will use to determine whether you love him or not, have faith in him? Now, many of you have been taught that all you need to do is believe in Jesus Christ or to have faith in him, that once you have faith in Jesus, you will go to heaven when you die. And I say you are correct there, but you have to realize that our faith in God or our confession of our love for God has to always work itself out through our actions, right? Just like God, when he came, well, God proved his love for us by how? By sending Jesus Christ to come and die for us on the cross and resurrect from the dead. God took the greatest action of all, that he sent his son to come and to die for us and resurrect from the dead, to prove to us, to show us, to reveal to us how much he loves us and how he desires to enter into a relationship with us. Amen? That's the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel message of why I believe you're here today. In the same way, we are to love God, and as we profess that we have faith in him, it needs to reflect within our actions. If it doesn't reflect our actions, then we don't love God no matter how much we declare it with our mouths. It's just impossible. And so I remember many years ago, uh, there was a couple that just had gotten married, and they were struggling in their marriage, and they had asked if I can come and just kind of counsel them for, for just a few hours or so. And so I did. I went over to the house, and, and you know, I've done so many of these now. I kind of understand the situation a little bit. And uh, they were both kind of fighting, trying to convince each other of certain things. And, of course, whenever a couple fights, they were always trying to get sort of their way or try to, they only see things their way. They, they, they really struggle to see things from the perspective of the spouse because they feel like they're right. And so they were talking and sort of arguing at, at, at one point, and the wife just said, you know, you don't love me. You don't love me. And he says, of course I love you. We're married. I love you very much. And she says, no, you don't. Because you work all the time. You're at work, and I get that. But even when you come home, you're hardly home. You go to church. You go play golf on the weekends. You're hanging out with your friends. And you leave me alone many times by myself at the house. You don't love me. And she had a real profound point there. Because just because they got a marriage certificate saying that they're married and that they love one another, it doesn't mean that they actually do love each other because if it's not backed up through actions, it's not real love. And it's the same way with God, that because God has acted on your behalf and my behalf, and he's demonstrated and revealed to us how much he loves us through Jesus Christ, and we can say amen to that because we know how much God loves us through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. God, too, now says, well, if you love me, then what are you doing to prove that love to me? 
Or what are you doing to reveal that you do love me? So then what is the one criterion based upon this passage that God will use to determine whether you love him or not? What is the one criterion that God will use to determine whether you will go to heaven or whether you will go to hell? This is for all eternity. It is how much you and I care for the poor and the oppressed. That's it. It's the only explicit instruction that Jesus ever gives in the Bible, in the Gospels, of what he will do on the day of judgment. The only other explicit instruction is found in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 47, where Jesus gives that famous parable of the sheep and the goats, and he says, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you do unto me. Both parables talk explicitly that God will use or determine whether we believe in him based upon how we love and care for the poor and the oppressed. And you guys know... uh, I think for many of us, we understand the realities of that. Many of us, we have a heart for the poor. We have that, and that's great. And we are to continue to have heart for the poor. Listen, um, in the story, we find that Jesus gives the poor man a name. Interesting, doesn't he? Does the rich man have a name? He doesn't. That's another interesting thing. And what we find here in the story is that the poor man, Lazarus, name literally means God has helped. That God has helped. Meaning that God cares for the plight of the poor and the oppressed. God cares for that. Right? He truly does. The rich man, we find, has more of a general meaning to it. And some scholars say that the reason why Jesus doesn't give the rich man a name is because he wanted the Pharisees to put their name in there. And so, you know, you're rich, I think, today. uh, Someone once said this. He says, you're rich if you have three meals a day and you have one pair of clothing in your closet. You're considered to be rich. You're rich if you make more than $2 a day because 3 billion people make less than than $2 a day in our world. You're wealthy if that's you. And we learn in the story here that God cares for the poor and the oppressed. And so we are to care for them, that God wants you and I to care deeply for the poor and the oppressed. And in many ways that he will see that as a sign that you love and that you believe in him. I mean, it's the only description that Jesus ever gives on what he's going to do on the day of judgment. He will look at how we served and loved the poor and the oppressed. And so the the poor is someone that God encourages you and I to serve and to love, but also the ones who are oppressed. And many times the poor are often oppressed. They go hand in hand. But when we talk about oppression, we're really talking about justice. And justice is something that Christians have to really think about what that really means. This week we did a show on Facebook Live on sexism. We call it Battle of the Sexes. And Pastor Sunita, Pastor Shirley, Pastor David were were our expert guest uh, panel uh, folks that that were there that were talking about sexism. We basically talked about why women from the beginning of time have always struggled to have any type of equality with with a man. And we talked about that, and they gave great, great suggestions and things like that. We talked about how that even happens even today in 2017. Of course, talking a little bit about the Me Too hashtag, well, that's sort of blown up on social media, which is really empowering women and men to share some of the sexual oppression that they've experienced from those in power over them, right? And so that's sort of sparked a huge interest in our society today. It's always happened, unfortunately, but it has. But we also talked about the church and how sometimes the church is institution where they've really oppressed women over time. But in that show, we talked about justice and we, and, and we addressed the men on that show. And we said, man, listen, you may not be exploiting, you not, may not be oppressing women, but how have you been complicit in sort of bringing them down? How have you objectified women? Because sometimes in this culture, even for a lot of men, you see women as just a sexual object. 
And so it's really great to hear Pastor Sunita and Shirley just go deep into that and talk about that. And I encourage you to listen to it. But Justice asked the question also, what are some of the social structures that are causing the oppressions of people? But also to ask the question, how have I been complicit in it? How have I been complicit in it? And we see that in the story that this rich man and Lazarus, that they too have this lifestyle where the rich man has this luxurious lifestyle, and this poor man is struggling to make it another day. And we find that God cares for the poor, so much so that he cares for his plight, that he gives them a name, Lazarus. Now, I know for some of you thinking, within well, does God play favorites? No, absolutely not. Either you guys know when you have children. Like, I have three children. If one of my kids were sick and not well, my wife and I would spend extra time caring for that sick child. My kids wouldn't get jealous and say, why are you spending more time with, you know, say he was Christian, Christian because uh, he's sick. Why are you spending more time with him? Do you love him more than us? No. My kids know that we love everyone the same, but we have to spend special care. We have to spend some more time caring for Christian because he is sick. He is not well. And it's kind of the same way with God. That because the poor and the oppressed are often hurting deeply and God has a heart for everyone because he loves all of his children and they're being oppressed and they're living in abject poverty, that God cares for their plight. And so if you're here today and you feel like you fall in that category of the poor, the hurting, or the oppressed, I want you to know today that God truly cares and understands your plight. He does. What I do want you to know that God is going to be there and strengthen you in every way. That God will give you the strength to endure this very difficult season in your life. He may not answer your prayers in necessarily the way you would like him to answer them. Because at the end of the day, the poor Lazarus still dies of his cold source. God doesn't heal him. But at the end, he's with God at the very end. God understands your plight. And sometimes he may not answer the kind of prayers that you may be praying, but God promises he'll be with you. And he expects us, the quote-unquote the rich, to care for the hurting people in this world. Our service to the poor is a reflection of our loyalty to God. Our service to the poor and the oppressed is a reflection of our loyalty to God. And in this story, we get a little picture of what hell is going to be like. The rich man is in agony. He's going through torment. Right? Hell, the reason why it's such a place of torment and a place of agony is simply because it's a place where you and I can see God, but we can't be with him. The rich man was in hell and he was able to see Abraham and Lazarus, and he wanted to go, but he couldn't go because there was that big separation between heaven and hell. Hell is a place where you can see God, but you cannot be with him. I don't know about you, but that's a great picture or depiction of what hell is is all about. So how do we live our lives so that we can enter into heaven? How do we live our lives so that we can enter into heaven? There are two thoughts I have for you. The first one is this. God accepts us into heaven if we serve the poor and the oppressed with our resources. God accepts us into heaven if we serve the poor and the oppressed with our resources. Look at verse 9. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. How do you know this guy was rich? He had a gate in his house. That's pretty rich. Like, I don't know, I don't know, I think I don't know anyone who's got a gate in front of their house. Like, the only places I see a gate is like when you're driving down close to Dock Road in Alpine and there's some big gates. You can't even see the house because it's so far away from the gate, right? This dude was rich because he had a gate, 
Right? He had a gate. But you know what else made, made him rich or what signified that he was rich? He wore purple clothing. Do you realize that purple was like, I mean, they didn't have name brands back then. You couldn't go into like a Chanel store and get something there. You couldn't go into like a Giorgio Armani store and get a nice suit there and stuff like that or a polo store. You couldn't do that. The color of your clothing determined how wealthy you were. And purple was the most expensive dye, was the most expensive color. And so if somebody wore purple, that means you had a lot of money. This man had resources. He used it all for himself. He never asked himself, how could I use my resources to serve the poor and the oppressed? And so as a result, what happened to him? He was sent to Hades. He was sent to hell as a result of that. It says that this, rich, that this poor man, Lazarus, he was sitting by his gate every single day, hoping to eat some of the crumbs from his table, and that the dogs were coming and they were licking his sores. And when a dog comes and licks your sores in the Jewish faith, you are, ceremon- you are ceremoniously unclean, ceremonially unclean. And so as a result of that, you couldn't even go near that person because they were dirty. They're considered to be repulsive, nasty, if you will. Right? And what I love about Jesus is he's saying something that even defies the Jewish faith. He's saying that he expects you, if you love me, he's saying, I expect you to go to the repulsive people. I expect you to go to those people that you think are nasty and you are to ask yourself, how could I use my resources to serve them better? Now, resources is your time. It's your talent. Some of you have great gifts that can bless the poor and the oppressed. And it's also your treasures, your money. That's your resources. And this rich man was not doing any of that. And so this man was struggling with sores and stuff. He was considered to be unclean and nasty. And so the rich man obviously didn't want to go near him. So I ask you today, who are the nasties in your life? Who are the people that you find repulsive? Do you know that God expects you to serve them with your resources? And that he would determine whether you have faith in him based upon that? Who are the nasty and the repulsive? I think for many of us, we love to romanticize serving the poor and the oppressed. We do. We love to romanticize it. But when you really get to doing it, it actually is not a very easy thing to do. Because at the end of the day, what God is calling you and I to do is not just to help them. Because helping them many times, it becomes like they become a project to us. But what God is calling us to do is to find ways where we can develop a relationship with them. Like the good Samaritan, when the, Samar- when the man was lying on the road half dead, he didn't just take him to the hotel and say, I'll be, I, good luck. He spent days with him. He came back and forth to check in, make sure he was doing okay. He was developing a relationship with this person. We romanticize, a lot of us, we romanticize serving the poor and the oppressed. And when we romanticize it many times, we're taking away the relational aspect of what God wants from us. We just see them as a project, and that's not what God wants. God wants us to open our heart, to love and to care, and to even serve the poor and the oppressed. So I ask you then, who are those repulsive and nasty people in your life? Who are they? God calls you to love and serve them with your resources. Are they prisoners? Are there maybe people who are sick and contagious? Like sometimes when somebody's sick, and I'm doing like someone from our office comes in, they're like, oh, I'm so sick. I'm like, why are you here? Go home. I don't want to get sick. I don't want to come near you. Get out of here, right? We do that a lot. Is it homeless people? People who don't have good hygiene? Some of you are very sensitive with the nose. And when somebody smells, I mean, it's like, I need to walk away from you. Somebody with a mental disorder, maybe, that you struggle with that? Who are the repulsive? 
Who are the quote-unquote ceremonially unclean in your life? God is saying, will you use your resources to serve them? What you need to realize is this. The rich man, he didn't oppress or exploit Lazarus. He didn't. He simply overlooked and neglected him. And that's what led him to hell. You see, I don't think any of you, I mean, I hope, God forbid, I don't think any of you are oppressing or exploiting the poor and the oppressed. I don't think any of you are doing that. But are there any of us today where we're overlooking, ignoring, neglecting? Because that alone is an indication that we don't fully know God then and we don't love him. We enter into heaven. God accepts us to heaven when we serve the poor and the oppressed with our resources, with our resources. Do you realize that what God has given to you isn't just for you, but it's for you to share and to share that with those who are hurting today? And so I want to encourage you guys, honestly, to, I mean, uh, Clay talked about this last week, I I believe. Check your checkbooks, your Venmo account, your credit card statement, and ask yourself, where are you spending all your money on these days? That's a great indication of, I think, where you are spiritually as well. Right? This rich man, unfortunately, even when he's hell, even when he's in hell, he still doesn't get it. We find that as he's in hell, what does he do? He still thinks Lazarus is beneath him. Look at verse 24. Look at what he says. So we called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Even though Lazarus is in heaven now, and this rich man is in hell, he still thinks Lazarus is beneath him because he wants Lazarus to come and serve him in a way. And he still doesn't get it, even in the afterlife. And listen, you and I have to get this. We do have to get this because so much of our faith cannot just be about us. That God expects you to believe in him and to love him. But part of that is that as you feel the throb of God's heart, because you're in this loving relation with him, that you will begin to have a passion and caring for those who are hurting, those who are considered to be the least, the last, and the lost. So the question that God has for every single one of us today is this. Who is sitting at your gate that you are not paying attention to? Who is sitting at your gate that you are not paying attention to today? That's the question you got to answer because God wants you to serve them with your resources. Last week I was in Madison, Wisconsin, and um, I was hanging out with one of my closest friends. His name is uh, Alex G. Some of you know him. He's a pastor. He's come in the past, speaking at our church. He's done some training for some of our leaders. Well, I went up there because uh, it's his birthday, and I like to go up there on his birthday and just kind of connect with him. Uh, and then he likes to come during my birthday time when he connects with me down here in New York. And, uh, and so we kind of do that every year. And so I went up there. But I also went up there because it was the 25th uh, year celebration of his nonprofit organization called Nehemiah. And Nehemiah has been doing some amazing things, creating some, some major in, inroads in the city of Madison. But 25 years ago, Alex had to ask this question, who is sitting in my gate? Who is sitting at the gate, at my gate, that I need to start paying attention to? And for him, it was really to serve the incarceration population, specifically the ones who are ex-offenders, meaning those who have come out, and they're trying to, again, assimilate into society. If you don't know anything about that, is that when people come out of prison, it's very difficult for them to kind of make it in this world to assimilate because of their record. They can't get good jobs because they have a criminal record and things like that. And in Madison, Wisconsin, they sent the highest number of people, black men, 
it to prison in the entire state, in the entire country, actually. The highest ratio of African-American men go to prison in Madison more so than any other state in the country. And so 25 years ago, Alex said, I am going to do the best I can to serve that population, to disciple them, to train them, to mentor them so that they can be good, they can be leaders, they can serve uh, others and mentor others as well. And so I went there for that 25th anniversary. I visited a couple of other reentry programs around the country, and I have to say this is by far the best I've ever seen. There's a guy there that I've met about six years ago. His name is Jerome, and he was uh, uh, one of Alex's key leaders. Jerome is an ex-offender, and uh, he used to work for Alex for many years. But recently, he actually left Nehemiah Corporation, and he's now working for a judge in Madison, Wisconsin. And this judge that he's working for is the very judge that put him behind bars many years ago. And he's consulting with them to help them to understand different types of cases, especially sex offender cases. And he's like a consultant to this judge. There's another guy that I met. His name is Aaron. He's about my age, and he still has an ankle bracelet on. And uh, he went up to a judge because a part of being a part of this Nehemiah Corporation is they're connecting with city officials, legal experts, judges in the city all the time. And he sat with this one judge, and he said, hey, you know, uh, do you have any black friends? And the judge says, no, I don't. And he says, you know, you put away a lot of black people behind bars. I think it's important for you to have a friend. And he said, can I be your friend? Can we get together for our meals and just connect? And I, I would love for you to get to know me. And so the, the, the man said yes. And they came to this event together, and they were introduced, and they were sharing how God's really blessed their relationship. And they're just doing amazing things, right? And so I looked at this, and I said, man, that, that's an example of somebody like Alex 25 years ago saying, who is sitting at my gate right now? How can I use my resources to serve them so that they can grow and be leaders and good con contributors to society today? Who is sitting at your gate that you need to pay attention to? Who is it? Do you know that much of purpose in life, that God's purpose for your life is so that you can serve the least of these, so that you can see how God will show you his love in a greater way as you do that? My hope is that you would begin to believe that in your heart, right? The second thing that we learn here is that God accepts us into heaven if we live out the teachings in the Bible. God accepts us into heaven if we live out the teachings in the Bible. Look at verse 27. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father, Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Do you love how Jesus kind of adds that at the end? He's like, they're not going to even believe someone if he rises from the dead. You don't think Jesus is talking about himself? That he's like, he knows he's going to resurrect from the dead. And he's going to say, if they don't believe in the Bible, if they're not allowing the Bible to impact them, nothing will. Nothing will. You see, the reason why you and I have to believe in the Bible today, because I know there's a lot of documentaries today that like to disprove the claims of the scriptures. I know there's a lot of documentaries that like to do that. And a lot of us, we like to watch some of those things. And I think today, we're probably living in a time where, you know, Christians are reading the Bible probably the least. And, and I get that. So I want to be sensitive to that. But, you know, uh, the reason why you and I have to believe the Bible is the word of God is because Jesus believes in it. And in this parable, he's so clear. He's saying miracles are not going to work. If the Bible hasn't impacted their life, nothing will. And I say that to you. If the Bible has not impacted your life, even until recently, then nothing is going to impact your life. 
Many of you are thinking an, a miracle from God is going to impact your life. You believe that. And I think it will. But think about that. Think about how many prayer requests God has answered for you. And then once he does, you just kind of forget about it over time. What truly will impact your life and sustain you over a long period of time here on this earth is when you allow the Bible to impact your life, when you believe in your heart that this is the very word of God, and as you read this, as you meditate on it, as you contemplate on the scriptures, that you will begin to learn more about God. And in this Bible, you'll learn that there are over 2,100 verses in the Bible where God has a heart and he expects you and I to serve the poor and the oppressed. 2,100 verses in the Bible. If we were to take out those verses, the Bible would be seriously incomplete. In the book of James, one out of four verses talk about the poor and the oppressed. In the New Testament, it's one out of 12 verses talk about that. In the Gospels, it's one out of eight verses talk about God loving and caring for the poor and the oppressed. It's the Bible that teaches us to be gracious because what? God's gracious to us. It's the Bible that teaches us that we are to be merciful. Why? Because God will be merciful to us if we do. And it's the Bible that will teach us that a meta-narrative in Scripture is that we are to care and love those who are poor and the oppressed. There's a lot of pain in our world. There's a lot of pain in your world. And God is encouraging us to find him there. And we have to read the scriptures to encourage us to learn more and how we can do that. How many times have we missed God, I wonder, because we have not read the scriptures. We have not allowed the Bible to impact our lives. How many times? And so my encouragement to you is this. Uh, don't be sporadic. Don't let your Bible times or reading the Bible be a sporadic thing. Let it be something that you discipline yourself to doing every single day of your life. Give it a chance. What do you got to lose? Look how many years it's been since you've actually read the Bible. But how's your life going right now for you? Why don't you give it a chance this year as we're heading towards the end of the year, saying every day I'm going to read a, a little piece of the Bible, and I'm going to learn, and I'm going to let God speak to me through the Scriptures. I encourage you to get a study Bible and, you know, some of you may not even know what a study Bible is. Um, every translation has a study Bible, and they're, they're really, the Bibles are really thick. And the reason why is because there's actually some commentary. There's some notes there that you can read and you can learn from. And if you need a study Bible, just email me. I promise I'll get you one. Okay, we have them in our, church, in our office. Somebody was very generous years ago, and he just said, you know what? I want our church to be Bible literate. So he ended up buying 100 copies for us. Genuine leather. Not that bonded leather stuff that breaks down after three or four months. Genuine leather study Bible. So if you want one, you can't afford one, please let me know. We'd be happy to send you one and give you one. But read that. Get into groups that focus on the Bible. All right, Pastor David, Pastor Mike, they'll be teaching books in the Bible again. They'll probably teach another class on how do you read and study the Bible. And I encourage you to do that. All right. Um, uh, in your apps, if you go to the Metro app and click on resources, if you go to our website and click on the resource tab, there's, a, there's a, a thing there that says seven steps to having quiet time. It's a resource for you. I, I encourage you guys to click on that, look at it, because it'll help you to read the Bible. And not just read it, because you know, it's not about you reading it, but it's about you contemplating and meditating on God's word so that God's word can speak to you in a powerful way. All right? It's in your app. It'll be on the website under resource titled Seven Steps to Having Quiet Time. I encourage you to access that resource. So when I went to seminary, um, I always thought, you know, helping and serving the poor was an important thing to do. I really did. 
I just thought it was a noble thing to do because as Christians, we should. We should go on the mission field. We should serve the poor. We should feed the homeless. Those are all noble things that God would want us to do. I didn't know that it was the heart of discipleship. I didn't know that you would actually meet Jesus as you do that. And, uh, you know, when I went to seminary, seminary my first year, uh, we studied Matthew 25 in a real deep way through one of the classes. It was an ethics class. And when Jesus says, I was hungry and you fed me, I was naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you took care of me, I was in prison and you visited me, whatever you've done to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you have done to me. Go, come to heaven. And then the other part of the end of that, in verse 40 and following, he says, I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and you didn't take care of me. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. For whatever you did not do to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did not do unto me. Go now to the place where there will be gnashing of teeth. Scary. But I realized this is the heart of discipleship. And I said, this is what I believe I have never really been taught. And so that was sort of the, how the birth uh, of, of Metro's vision came about. And so when we came back, when I came back to Jersey uh, uh, 13 years ago to start this church, uh, we started this, uh, we had this huge banquet called Living It Up. That's the very first one we did. I'll never forget it. We had like our people who can cook. They cooked up an amazing meal. Uh, there was a wedding band that came up and, and they played, you know, these great songs that they'd often play at weddings. And a lot of, we were a small church, you know, real small church back then. And all of our people wore these really nice clothing to be servers and stuff. And we had hoped that people would come out. We didn't know how many would come out. We called every shelter and said, please do come. If you need transportation, we'll come pick you up. We didn't know how many people were going to come. And uh, we were so shocked and we were so blown away that 88 people came out that day. And we were a tiny church back then. Just to see the reception of that was just so great. And uh, they were eating the food. We were serving them to the best of our ability. Our hope was to just treat them like they were very important people. VIPs is what our goal was, to help them to feel. And I think we achieved that at some level. And then they were like the dancing part. And they loved the dancing because the songs were great. They loved the dancing. But uh, you know how a wedding band will usually have different sets and they had a slow set? And so there was a slow set part, and a lot, most of the people were dancing, but I saw at the corner of the room, there was a woman who wasn't. She was just kind of standing and just watching with a big smile. An older white woman, she had some, she wore, I, I remember she was wearing a white sweatshirt, uh, light colored jeans, they were both quite dirty. And so I said to my wife, I said, honey, uh, do you mind if I ask that woman if I could dance with her? And she said, yeah, sure, go ahead. And so I went over to her and I said, hi, I'm Peter. Uh, would you mind dancing with me? And so she smiled. She said, I'm Cindy. I would love to. And so we started dancing, and I busted out some of my best moves on her. Right? <laughs> we had a great time. And she just had this real big smile on her face. And she kept saying to me, I cannot believe this. And I thought she was complimenting my dancing. <laughs> I was like, that's right. It's good. But that's not what she was saying. She kept saying, I can't believe this. And I said, what can't you believe, Cindy? She said, I almost missed this. She was like, I had no idea where we were going. It was cold. We did it in February, so it was cold. She was walking on the streets of Hackensack, and she was freezing. She didn't know what to do. And then she said all she heard was somebody in a white van yell, get in, Cindy. And she just didn't know where it was going, but she didn't want to be in the cold, so she jumped in the van, and she didn't know where we were going, and she, she came to our Living It Up event, and she said, I cannot believe I almost missed this night. She said, thank you. It's one of the best nights I've ever had. And so I just said, thank you. I said, you know, it's our honor and our pleasure to do this, but I just want you to know, Cindy, I said, what you feel right now, the joy, is really God's love for you. 
And she had this big smile. And again, I had this eerie awareness that Jesus was staring right back at me. Jesus saying, whatever you do to the least of these, you do it unto me. A week later, we had some folks uh, that came out to that event attend our church. And a week later, they informed me that Cindy had been stabbed to death on the streets of Hackensack. And it was horrible to hear that news. It was. But I thought about that, and I just said, you know, God, I hope perhaps maybe that was the day when she, when I danced with her, that maybe she gave her life to Jesus. But I thought, I'm just so thankful that at least she got the chance to taste a little bit of what God's love was all about. And you know what? I'm seriously grateful that I got to meet Jesus through her. Metro, there are a lot of people in this area. There are a lot of people in your lives that are considered to be poor and the oppressed. And they feel like they have no hope in life. And God is saying, if you love me, if you say you really love me, how could you not help those that are sitting at your gate today? So the challenge that Jesus has for all of us is will you stand up, pay attention to those that are at your gate, And will you dedicate your life, your resources to saying, how can I begin to serve those in this world that are considered to be the forgotten, the poor and the oppressed? Jesus says, that is how I will determine whether you have faith in me and whether you will go to heaven or hell. My hope and my prayer for all of us is that this wouldn't just be something we hear and say, okay, we'll do. It'll be something that maybe we'll try to do. But this will become your lifestyle to following God, and to loving the very creator who created you in his image. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer.